Hello, my name is Sarah and I am your chakra coach. On this podcast, we'll be exploring how the chakra system can help guide you to grow your emotional, mental, physical, and spiritual wellness, leading you closer to your highest self. Hello, welcome to the podcast and thank you for being here. If you're listening for the first time because today's topic intrigues you, I hope you especially enjoy the show. We're not talking directly about chakras today, but about an entirely different method of healing, and that's psychedelics. Yes, these are generally illegal in the United States, but rest assured, we are talking about legal use, or at least pre-illegal use. Dr. Jahan Kamsazada is an academic, a researcher, who studies psilocybin, the compound found in mushrooms and other plants that can have hallucinogenic effects. We're talking about the history of plant use in indigenous tribes and the impact that these plant medicines may have had on the development of consciousness as we know it. We'll also get into the current legal research that's being done all over the world and how psychedelics are being used to treat depression, anxiety, addiction, and even PTSD. It's a fascinating conversation, but if you don't care to hear about these substances, then just skip over today's episode and I'll see you next week. Let me tell you a little bit about Jahan. Dr. Jahan Kamsazada completed his dissertation on psychedelics in the Philosophy, Cosmology, and Consciousness program at the California Institute of Integral Studies. His book, The Psilocybin Connection, Psychedelics, A Transformation of Consciousness, and Evolution of the Planet, an Integral Approach, was published in 2022 and is found everywhere you buy books. He earned his Master's in Consciousness and Transformative Studies from John F. Kennedy University and his Bachelor's from the University of Arizona with a major in Philosophy and Minors in Physics, Psychology, and Mathematics. Aside from his academic work, he's undergone several major trainings, including graduating from the two-year Hakomi Somatic Psychotherapy Program and training within the Mazatec Mushroom Tradition. He assisted in the Psychedelic Assisted Psychotherapy Certificate Training at CIIS for two years and mentored at the Center for Conscious Medicine. He's a content advisor for the Synthesis Psychedelic Guide Training and works as a facilitator for legal psilocybin mushroom ceremonies in Jamaica with Atman Retreats. I'm going to put links to his website and social media profiles in his show notes. And like I said, you can get his book on Amazon uh, or wherever you get books. And I've put a link in the show notes for that too. And just remember, if you're anything like me, this topic could make you a little uncomfortable because it's outside of my experience. And culturally, this topic has been taboo for a long time. But if you can set aside some of your preconceptions, like you'll hear that I had to do, Dr. Jahan might just open your mind and heart to some new possibilities. Dr. Jahan Hamsadade, welcome to Your Chakra Coach. How are you today? I'm doing really well. Thank you, Sarah. I'm really happy to be here. I'm so happy that this worked out. Y'all, I don't know how you could possibly know this, but it took us a while to get our schedules to line up, but they have lined up absolutely perfectly for this interview. And I, I just couldn't be happier to be having this conversation with you. So we are talking today about psilocybin, which I know is kind of a controversial topic. And 
I'm not entirely sure it should be as controversial mm. as it is. And so I, that's kind of why I loved reading about you and reading about your research is because you're sort of taking some of the, the controversy out and really addressing the origins of the use of magic mushrooms or, you know, all of the names that we have for these things. Um, but before we get too deep into that, how, how did you even get started in research yeah. like this? Yeah, well, I got fascinated at age 15, really, the idea that I could take a substance and it would shift my perception of reality astounded me, you know, got me questioning, like, how do we even trust our own perception? Then if a chemical can do that to make you see something that isn't really there. So that was the line of thinking when I was young. Um, I was suicidal and depressed by the time mm. I was 15, 16. And then uh, I took mushrooms on the way to see my favorite band Tool play a concert and had like the classical transcendental experience of the ego death of like, I, I felt like I was going to die, let that happen. And then there was this immense connection with God. And I was an atheist at the time. So this was way outside the bounds of what I thought was possible and ended in this beautiful dialogue for 90 minutes. And it shifted my life overnight where now there's a direct experience of spirituality, um, that consciousness pervades everything. Everything's interconnected. Love is the essence of all existence. And so and one thing it said is love is the most important thing by far, followed by learning. Everything else is insignificant compared to these two values. So I committed myself to education and then went into almost 20 years of upper academia, you know, studying philosophy, expansion of consciousness, psychology, the, the history unfolding of evolution. You know, and that took me to my doctorate program um, where I focused on psilocybin because I felt it was the most beneficial place to put my attention. That's so fascinating. And I do feel like it's somewhat under research and i understand that that's part of because you know there are we have a lot of laws in this country um whether that's good or bad uh, everyone can decide for themselves but they do in fact exist so it is a challenge to research mm. but it's not so difficult to research the history of it which you've done a terrific job of i would love to discuss sort of the human history of mm. psychedelic substances they weren't street drugs they weren't things you you bought, they were plants that were used for medicine and experiences in mm. in indigenous cultures. Will you take us through a little bit of the, the history as we know it? Yeah, no. And uh, I mean, to honest answer, I have to go pretty far back. And at the heart of my dissertation was this idea first put forward by Terence and Dennis McKenna that was actually perhaps psilocybin mushrooms that catalyzed human evolution. And in my 20 years of studying the expansion of consciousness, it's the most grounded theory I've ever come across. And it's simple that perhaps there's consciousness expanding compounds in the environment where our primate answers developed. And as the great mycologist Paul Stamets notes, the most common mushroom in the Africa savanna is a psilocybin variety. I think 17 different species of primates eat mushrooms. And to even see how this works, we have to look at what is what are mushrooms, right? They're, they're part of fungi. Fungi is one of the large three kingdoms of biology. And uh, fungi is the body's mycelium, this large underground network that connects all the plants in the environment. Like fungi has been around for about 2.5 billion years, animals 500 million. It looks like psilocybin evolved about 70 million years ago, so it's it's pretty ancient. And on top of this living web, we've evolved our entire history. 
And out of this web comes the little mushroom, the cap and stem, and over 200 different species of psilocybin exist, right? And psilocybin fits into the 5-HT2A serotonin receptor, better than serotonin itself, creates a hyper-connected brain state, stimulates what's known as neurogenesis, the growth of new neurons. So their brain physically begins to grow. So the idea is that over generations and many generations and epigenetically, we continue to evolve our brain and the capacities we now have, like rationality, creativity, spirituality. You know, and the studies have shown now over about 50 years that um, 65% of people in the right clinical set and setting have a classical mystical experience. So then we have a grounded experience, uh, explanation for the emergence of religion and spirituality itself. And so as anthropologists notes, the roots of all spirituality and religion are shamanistic, that there's people existing in tribes, which we were tribes, most of human history, that interacted with plants and fungi in the environment to connect to the spiritual world. Right. So it's there at the very beginning. And as we keep going back, whether it's the ancient Greeks, the ancient Hindus, and then all across the Americas, they specifically had wrote down and depicted it in, in paintings and with their own words of um, psychedelic use. So it's been a rampant, huge part of human history. It's only we're just rediscovering it now. So the theory is that humans were using mushrooms or consuming mushrooms technically before there were humans, that that was yeah. part that both the use of psilocybin and the evolution of human beings sort of went along side by side that there is not necessarily human consciousness as we know it without this, these plants. There you go. So, I mean, the entire biosphere has always been evolving interdependently. You know, there's a Lynn Margulis, the great um, evolutionary biologist, you know, she really points out that evolution evolves through symbiotic relationships. You call it symbiogenesis. So we all develop everything in the environment, normally through the interaction of other organisms including our food, especially our food. And so we're talking about this huge underground sensitive structure that we've been on top of always. And the idea also being that there's a lot of incentives for compounds to expand consciousness. It makes us more aware. Um, Richard Doyle, this, uh, another professor, wrote this book, uh, Darwin's Pharmacy, Sex, Plants, and Evolution of the Noosphere. And he read thousands of trip reports. And he said that the main psychedelic insight is that the participant realizes they're part of a vast interconnected living system and they should be returned ecodelics. So when we put this together, there's plants in the environment um, and there's thousands of psychedelic plants that tend to create a state of homeostasis in the environment, a state of connectedness with nature because there's a lot of incentive because then nature remains healthy. The same I way see. the body's trying to repair itself – the, the environment's also always trying to repair itself. So nature helps to repair itself by encouraging the other parts of nature, us, to care for it because we recognize that it is part of us. There's well, one and the same. We've all evolved together. You know, and the plants and the fungi create such an array of different chemical compounds and molecules that heal our body. I mean, our entire food system is dependent on plants, right? So even if you're carnivore, you eat other animals that depend on plants. And our oxygen depends on them too. So we're, mm -hmm. we're talking about like we're that dependent, including with fungi and plants, for our emotional, intellectual, and spiritual development. Right. I remember reading, oh, not reading, but like studying in junior high, you know, the seven basic needs for life. And they're actually not, if you took away one of them, you simply wouldn't have yeah, life. Right. There just wouldn't yeah, be. Right. And I feel like that's kind of what you're saying is that there are all of these parts of life but you take away one and we we don't have any of it mm -hmm. anymore and so we have these mm -hmm. compounds in the plants that we consume to expand our consciousness to care for the plants mm -hmm. and then the plants care for us by providing the compounds to expand our consciousness and then we continue yeah. and then this yeah. beautiful virtuous cycle if yeah. you will 
It's totally like, yeah, it's, it's definitely this, this beautiful, like you said, interdependent symbiotic relationships of inter deep intertwinement. And just you're saying like the essential needs. So 90% of plants have a symbiotic relationship to fungi. It turns out they were the first root systems. There was this mycelial web. That's how roots actually developed. And 80% of plants would die if fungi went out of existence. So we're talking about like the bedrock of all biological large level life. And then it's out of that substrate that we even get these mushrooms with psilocybin. So again, it's not only physically that interconnected, but I'd say in the realm of consciousness, we're also that entangled. Fascinating. So at what point did humans, homo sapiens, as we know them, start to intentionally use uh, psychedelic plants, mushrooms and such for whatever they use them for? What did they use them for? And when did they start using them? Totally. So we're talking about the very beginning of rituals. You know, let's go back quite a long time. As far as I know, we can date back about 70,000 years ago, we have what Yova Noah Harari, who wrote the bestseller book Sapiens, called um, the cognitive revolution, where evolution is no longer just based on our biology, but by our cognition and myth-making and culture. And during this time, we see the emergence of cave paintings and, and arts. And as Graham Hancock, another author that writes about the other psychedelic use, um, he knows that we can figure out what created the creation of arts. We know what's the creation of tools, because it's the same kind of creativity, and they all arose at about the same time. And there's another cognitive archaeologist name was David Lewis Williams, who for about four decades researched cave art. And during the 80s, 90s, and 2000s, and he deduced that he posits that um, cave art actually arose likely through psychedelic states because caves create a safe space. Where you mm -hmm. know, it's dark. You can see your visions in there. It keeps you safe from weather and from predators. And then the shaman, the facilitator comes in and holds a ceremony. And then you're seeing these large visionary images and you're simply tasting like just tracing them onto the wall, right? So then even what I just described here is the beginning of rituals, of myths, of having these transcendental experiences within a safe social container. And one argument against this theory, and I've been looking at this for 20 years, I haven't found a legitimate argument, to be honest, but one that I've heard is um, taking psychedelics can make us vulnerable, which absolutely it does, you know? I mean, to say, I mean, when we fall asleep, we're vulnerable for like eight hours a day, right? Like that's, that's right. just Right? So th that's even more vulnerable. But if you take a large amount of mushrooms, it shows that small amounts, you, you might actually enhance performances in running and athletics and sexual activity and a lot like microdoses. But at larger levels, you can barely move, but you're having these profound experiences. Again, that's all the, the safe, the, 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 the cave provides a safe setting. But at some point, we also had moved to like just ritual containers where there are guardians, where there are shamans, where people are taking care of us. So then you have the very beginning of even the kind of religious structural impulses. Terence McKenna, the psychedelic philosopher, says at some point you probably linked it up with the moon cycle, right? So then you kind of have full moon, right? At some point we're following the rhythms of nature, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. and you're probably having fertility rituals because mushrooms can also increase sexual arousal. Then you have the full moon come up. And so you have the beginning of large level rituals that first started arising within humanity. And that also, according to this theory, is the beginning of what we consider religion now. Yeah, totally. um, and they. So was it a matter of people putting words and structure on these non-structured, non-verbal events? Is that how that sort of became religion as we know it? Totally, totally. And even, you know, that you're putting words and language, you know, Terrence McKenna was the first to say this, but a lot of people follow that. He believes even the ability to have language arose from these states, you know, and, and through this process in the synesthesia, which is was one known within humans and research where we can conflate one sense for to another, where people might smell something and they see a color, 
you know, or they might like, they might feel something, but then they hear a sound. So our senses can get conflated. And so at some point that happened between thoughts and sound and then in symbolic images, right? So when we move in these psychedelic states, I'd say the prime experience in psychedelic states is one of unity. We feel kind of a sense of oneness within ourselves and the environment. And so our senses get really intertwined. And so at some point we start lining up meaning with sound and then bringing and creating culture. So that we have the beginning of language itself, which none of this would exist without language for us to communicate and coordinate. But at some point, the language might have arose. Um, even within religious studies, there's this concept known as glossolalia, this utter spontaneous utterings where people going to go to, like, for example, reborn Christians and kind of get really in a high state and speak in tongues. And right. that sense of tongues has been there throughout all of culture. And it's also kind of well-known in psychedelic states. So some people are filled with so much energy that's beyond that and they just start uttering sounds that they don't quite intellectually understand but seems to be infused with some kind of divine meaning so the idea is that at some point when we're having these profound experiences we're wanting to break out of our bubbles to communicate it with others you know so there's one impulse out of many for the emergence of language itself that's so interesting and it makes so much sense that you would start that the, that the synesthesia would lead to that that it was a confluence of the various aspects of humanity coming together and then creating this new thing and it you know it created words it created art it created uh ritual um mm -hmm. so I, that makes that makes kind of a lot of sense to mm -hmm. me so when people started using it in these ritualistic ways where they had guides shamans and things like that what were they using the the, the psychedelics for was it for spiritual development was what was it what was the purpose of these initial rituals yeah or do we know yeah i mean one great way to look at the answer to what you just shared is well what do we know when we take it today because it probably was just as true for our ancestors you know as i mentioned right now through about 50 years of research people in the right set and setting 65 percent have a classical mystical experience and even after two decades of follow-up with some of these people one in three say it was one of the top most important experiences of their entire lives and so i, I say that about myself i know the most important experiences of my life have been on psychedelics because they've reached me to points of you could say um realization or awareness of myself in the world that i never would have reached otherwise and give me a deeper sense of freedom and interconnectivity and i've seen that true for lots of other people so if you have these plants in the environments where it's the possibility of that that some people in the tribe are having the most important experiences of the entire life they would have found this as useful to, for the tribe and we know now we've done studies on how it increases creativity and empathy which would have added a lot to the group container right so there's there's even with the studies now, there's and it heals depression, it heals addictions, it heals near end of life anxieties. All that would have been useful for the tribe. So it seems like it would have increased the overall health of the group as a whole, psychologically, spiritually, and emotionally. And keeping them connected to one another in a time when being connected to your tribe was of paramount importance, because if you were disconnected, you simply wouldn't survive. Well said. You know, as again, Yuval Noah Hari points out in Sapiens that at the tribal level, before we begin studying agriculture and like getting rooted down more of a hunter-gatherer species, the prime value is relationships. You can only own what you can carry, right? So material wealth is really non-existent. Your entire survival depends on the tribe. Where you're going to get food depends on the tribe. Your overall safety depends on the tribe. He points out your relationships with the tribe is more important than looking out for predators because you're in a large group and they've got your back. You know, so your entire future depends on it. And if you are shunned out or feel like you don't belong, it's death. 
yeah. for you, right? It's hard to survive out there. So the group tribal environment was paramount. It was the number one. And that's why I think we, we're feeling so disconnected now because we, we don't put relationships at the top. We put a lot of other things, material success and so on, which mm -hmm. leaves us disconnected. But our psyche evolved hundreds of thousands to millions of years within this tribal group container. Where we're always generally in deep connection with one another. Right. Whereas currently like material hoarding, right? We have storage units and we have homes and we have cars and we have bags yeah. and we have things that we keep our stuff in. And then we're like, this is my stuff. Yeah. And we have less of that sense of, uh, I must like the community must survive at all costs. Right. Totally. Like, and I'm not saying that everyone feels this way or that we intentionally feel this way. I think in a lot of ways that it's not, people don't go into their lives thinking how selfish can I be today? <laughs> right? Like that's just not, that's, that's not how we think, but that is some, sometimes the result. And I think it's very interesting that the use of this, these plants, which again, were right there in the environment, just like all of the other plants that they were using for food and sustenance and uh, building materials, all of the things that they were using. It was just another one of those things. There wasn't the stigma of course, that there is today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Let's talk about today. Um, these, uh, substances were declared illegal in uh, the 1960s, I believe. Am yeah, I... by 1970, they were declared 1969, 1970. Okay. I, I thought it was kind of right around in that area declared illegal. Um, and I don't necessarily wanted to get into the whys of all of that. Cause I'm not sure it's relevant. Mm -hmm. Um, although it is interesting listener, if you want to go have a little research on why it's, it's a fascinating story. Um, but recently, the use of psilocybin has been approved for research in a lab setting in the United States and in Australia and all, all other kinds of the, the right. UK, all kinds of places. Switzerland has, Germany, lots of places have um, research facilities. And they're using these substances to do interesting things. Would you tell us about what the current research is showing us? Yeah, totally. Uh, or from my perspective, the implications are a little unfathomable. Like we're just scratching the surface and I'll definitely go on details of the very specific researches, but one way to kind of understand what is happening with these medicines, um, Stanislav Grof, he's a psychologist that worked in this field for about 60 years. He's 80 years now. And so he started even before they became illegal. And he's done a lot of work in this area and started transpersonal psychology and so on. And he said, psychedelics catalyze what he calls holotropic states of consciousness, states mm -hmm. that organically move towards wholeness. 
you know, and from a holistic perspective, and it's hard to argue against that our entire system is interconnected, you know, our organs are all interconnected with our emotions, you know, with our mind, with our being. And so it seems to be that these specifically, I'll focus on psilocybin, there's a lot of other psychedelics to create a state of wholeness, which also means not only in our emotions and in our intellect, but also in our brain, it hyperconnects the brain. And there's some evidence that shows that creates wholeness in parts of the body. I've seen people's just pain that they've had physically for years go away. And there's some research starting on spinal injuries and nerve growth. Some people, oh, I know, I know, it's so, so, so far out. Yeah, so so we know it grows nerves in the brain, but it's there's an article that came out recently that somebody had a spinal injury and couldn't walk for like a couple of years, and then he could walk after mushrooms. And of course, he tried physical therapy and all the other stuff. And there's some research starting on, on um, spinal damage on it. But the, there's been some conclusive evidence in some other areas for sure. Um, Mad mentioned there's been mystical experience studies since the 1960s. We'd mentioned before we got on that the Good Friday experiments was the first at Harvard. You know, there, there was Harvard held, I think, three to four different psilocybin studies before it became illegal. And starting in uh, 1999, at John Hopkins and New York School of Medicine, they started research again. And so we they started, I believe, with the, there's been several things we've touched on. One was near the end of life anxiety. Right. So, of course, we're going to start with the things or why people are in pain. But it also helps really healthy people too, all right? So, so people near end of life anxiety is people that they've been diagnosed with a terminal illness. They have about six months to two years to live, and they are catatonic almost with the fear of their impending death that they can't enjoy the time they have a year left. With family, friends, a sense of meanings, they're kind of in shock and at home. And about 80% of them have, after a psilocybin experience can let go of their fear of death and enjoy their life, right? So that's huge because the fear of our death is almost every living thing has pretty deeply. That's a big thing to overcome. And one of the most popular use cases that's super beneficial for our culture now is um, the healing of depression. Yeah. So the studies have now been pretty conclusive. They're in the third round of FDA trials of healing treatment-resistant depression. By treatment-resistant, these are people that have been depressed for many years, sometimes a couple of decades, that have tried pretty much every other method. They've tried all the medications and they've tried all these other forms of therapies and they're still depressed. 80% of that population heals. That's amazing. I mean, when you're that depressed, you're, you're suicidal, right? So my sense and overall experience so far is that more than 80% of people can heal from depression. They're like, they're at the most extreme end, right? So that's, and one reason it's it's happening is um, depression is a quite a rising epidemic across Western societies. And I believe um, it's the biggest cause for people becoming uh, disabilitated. Right, because they're so depressed that they're no longer functioning or capable. So it's a pretty big deal. It's eighty percent success rate for alcoholism, and then nicotine addiction. It's the highest for nicotine addiction of everything we know. So it seems the implications are a little endless. You know, there's no medicine that works one hundred percent for all people. You know, sure. and and but it seems to really elevate the quality of life, your experience of yourself, and the experience of the world, which in turn changes your behavior and the way you act and feel. And so we're just scratching the surface about what's possible here with these medicines. Yes, I think that's true. I think it's really neat. I want to touch back on, um, I think the depression and the addiction studies are particularly fascinating to me because going back to what we talked about um, with the sense of connectedness, right? I, you know, there's that saying that the opposite of addiction is connection, That's it. you know, and yeah. so I'm, I'm interested, you know, is do you, and we may be stepping outside what the research shows at this point, but do we think that 
like because the psilocybin connects us to ourselves more deeply and connects us to the world more deeply and to others more deeply, you know, in these consciousness expanding ways that people are able to sort of move out of addiction because they have more of that deep, true knowledge of connection. Is that sort of the, the why of it, do we think? That's exactly where I'm coming to, you know, I mean, so, so, you know, I've been holding legal ceremonies in Jamaica now for five years. So I've been able to see a lot of people go to experiences. Half the time people's lives change overnight. It's not a guarantee, you know? So the hardest part of the work has been dealing with some people's disappointment where they come in with huge expectations. And there's some people it's just, it hasn't, or maybe they need more journeys. It just hasn't been that effective for, but the for people that it has, I don't know what you were to use other than miracle where they could be stuck in some depression pattern or addiction. And then overnight they stop, you know, like five years of drinking every day and then they stop. And so just to get to the heart or the reason, you know, as you were kind of sharing, you know, bring forward a Maslow's hierarchy is model of developmental needs that a lot, most people are familiar with, you know, at the bottom, you put safety needs, you know, which could correspond to these near end of life anxiety. They're like, I don't feel safe. Right. And then after that, we have belonging needs around connection and then love and then self-esteem. And Maslow had said the great, uh, you know, developmental psychologist, while we're working on these levels, we feel a sense of deficiency. So it's easy to get stuck. So then mushrooms create this sense of overall safety because you're like, wow, I'm okay, even at death because we're so united and interconnected. There's even the experience of being eternal. So fear goes away. And then it gives us experience of boundary dissolving a connection with everything around us, right? Which really heals a sense of like, we feel fragmented and separated, which I think, again, is so much of the root of depression. But at the heart of depression, what I've seen is a correlation with self-esteem. Depression is what I've come to. If I had to break down is I don't like myself. And if you're forced to be somebody you don't like, life is inherently painful and damp. It's even putting this idea of like an inner child. It's like telling your inner child, you're not good enough. Nobody likes you. You're, so you're depressed and you're, your life force is gone. It's hard to connect with people. It's hard to do anything. You don't believe in yourself, right? Even to contrast it, say with somebody that really likes themselves, then they like who they are. So life is pleasurable. There's confidence. There's zest, right? So it really comes down to their relationship with the self. And so much of that relationship is damaged because of their conditioning. Maybe the parents they were born with didn't like themselves or their parents were abusive. And, you know, society's always kind of, right now, especially Western culture, instead of creating safety, they create a sense of deficiency. We're not enough with finances and so on. That's right. And it tends to heal those wounds where people break out of these illusions about who and what they are. They're going to be seen as deconditioning agents. And then they feel really connected with everybody. So these base needs, whether, whether it's depression or addiction, comes down to there's some base need that's not being met. And this really kind of meets that need by experiencing that we're actually one. As, as, as cliche as that may sound, the sense of unity actually heals most of these needs. So I think in my head, I was sort of separating the two types of use, meaning like, oh, there's one that's for healing depression and end of life anxiety and uh, addiction. And then there's one for people who want a spiritual transformation. But I feel like what you're saying is those two things are so interconnected that you cannot actually have one without the other. You know, there's degrees of it. Of course, my hope, the reason I got into this work is a spirituality. What became clear once I got in, it's 70% trauma work, right? But the correlations in the clinical studies have shown that there's a high correlation between mystical experiences and healing. Mm -hmm. So the more the person has a mystical or classical spiritual experience, the more they tend to heal from all the other things, right? So they do really go together. It doesn't mean it's going to happen. Sometimes you're doing deep agony trauma work for six hours. And other times we're like, oh my God, I've never seen this profound feeling of love and beauty before. Right. Bliss like a thousand suns. Yes. Very well metaphor. And then 
the impulse for alcohol or self-harm just dissipates naturally. They don't have to work at it. Sometimes they don't have to work at it anymore. The whole being has really just shifted because they didn't have this experience of deep love before that left to these addictive patterns. Now that they have it, their cup is full. There's also been some research and um, and journeys done on people suffering from PTSD, particularly uh, soldiers out of some of the recent American conflicts have taken um, psilocybin in you know these these controlled specific environments, not just in their garage or whatever, but with guides who help them with the preparation and the integration. Um, do you find that? When you read the research on that, or if you've worked with people like that, do you find that it's sort of the same thing, like PTSD stems sometimes from things people have done or have seen that damage their connection to themselves and to their humanity and to humanity in general, and that the psilocybin helps to restore that? Is that... Totally. So, yes. So, a few ways to even approach this question. Um, I, I want to pause that where I feel specifically working with trauma MVMAs might be the best. You know, okay. and so I, so I think overall, when it comes to overall general healing, I, I put psilocybin at the top and not to say all the other psychedelics are really, really amazing. Um, but MDMA tends to more than the other medicines produce a state of safety and of love and okayness. And so mm -hmm. with the people with hardcore PTSD, they've experienced something where they feel it's not safe to feel the emotion. It's not safe to see the memory. So it creates a state of like, and non-judgment. So like there, there's kind of this state of like, oh my God, I can actually hold and deal with this. Psilocybin, one of the amazing but difficult attributes is it's a wild card every time. You don't know what's going to happen. Like, so, so like MDMA, 90% time feeling of love and safety. Psilocybin, you don't know a box you're opening, which means there's always continual growth. Every time you take it, there's the ability to grow in newness. So it's amazing in that way. But the person might be shot into deep fear or deep shame and not know how to hold it. It's a process of healing, but they not have, might not have the bandwidth, right? So I, maybe even I think in the future, once we move to legality, the stacking of these two is going to be really, really effective. Like, let's get rid of the fear and move into the psilocybin. But if I can get to the deeper you know, question that you're sharing with trauma itself, you know, so I, I see trauma as an experience is still stuck in the body. So part mm -hmm. of them still stuck in the past and they think That's it's right. happening right now. Right. So they go to war and hear loud noises that they're frozen inside a part of their being. And then they hear loud noises here. It's, it's happening again. It's happening again. Right. And so I did two years of somatic psychotherapy training, Hakomi, and it really kind of points out that, that all emotions are in the body and it's held in the, of the armor of the body and the tensions. And that has to get out. And these experiences, what they do is I mentioned with Stanislav Grof, create organically a self-organizing state of wholeness, mm -hmm. which means the integrating of all parts of you is in these experiences. So in these states, whatever is repressed comes up to the surface to be integrated by itself, including the difficult emotions, also including sometimes positive emotions that people could feel like sexual energy is a, or people weren't allowed to feel joy or happy for themselves. That can come up, but often than not, it's repressed fear, repressed shame, repressed anger. Then that comes up to be digested and become part of the system. And that's part of the process. You were talking about leading in legal journeys in Jamaica, and that's part of the process, right? Right. There's a, you have somebody there to help you through the moment, but also to help you integrate what did come up. So if this deep fear or deep shame comes up, it isn't a failed trip. It's just yeah. somehow you've got to integrate these things that were already a part of you. And it's time to bring them to the surface. It's like, it's like when we talk about shadow work, right? It's putting a little light on some of those dark things that we'd rather not look at but the only way to heal from them is in fact to look at them 
Mm. And I'm, I'm hearing that psilocybin is a way to sort of facilitate that process. Would you say that's accurate? No, totally. You know, and I think, and our culture will eventually grow out of this framework of Brad trips that might've arose from the sixties when there was no container context and understanding, you know, life is filled with difficult experiences. Doesn't mean they're bad. And we need struggle. I feel to, to grow and to become strong. And so, especially if we put psychedelics within the context of therapy, right? You go to therapy and you're kind of aware that you might go through difficult emotions, but it's for the sake of healing and growth. It's the same here, right? Things are needing to be integrated. And that's why, first and foremost, I'd encourage somebody that's a skilled facilitator or therapist or kind of, you know, more of a shaman in a different indigenous societies to help you through the process. As we shared, so much healing is about connection. So somebody being there deeply connected with you through the process heals a lot of the wounds and helps you create more safety. And it's a difference between trying to do therapy by yourself, which is you could sit there and try to do, you know, but if you're skilled with a, with a skilled therapist, you're going to go deeper. So you're introducing this relational element to that experience. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense to me. Let's talk for a minute about sort of the, the fear around these, these substances, these plant medicines, because I think we, we do exist in a world that's done a very good job of making us very afraid because, oh, you'll have a bad trip. Oh, you'll have a flashback or, you know, all of these things that I, I've heard about. Would you address that for me real quick? Certainly. You know, I think psychedelics, maybe more than anything, has the ability to bring up all our fear, which could be freeing if we look at it in one way and cleansing. And when I've done these journeys in Jamaica, 90% of the people show up scared and anxious, you know, and honestly, I've had hundreds of journeys myself and I'm still showing up anxious because anxiety tends to be the instinctual response to the unknown, right? We don't know what's going to happen. Like, as I mentioned, it's a wild card. So you're about to cross this threshold where you don't have no idea what's going to happen. And so there's a self-protective part that comes up around that. But the truth is we live in a reality where the next moment's never known. It's constantly changing. We don't know tomorrow. We don't know next year as intelligent as we think we are, right? And so how do you create security in a world that's just constantly changed? One is to create a deeper security with the structure of the universe and your own being and your capabilities. So like approach the journey of like, whatever it is, I can handle it. Fear goes away, you know, so, so it's fun. And we so, talk about that a lot on this show is just finding sort of that inner strength and that inner trust, knowing that whatever happens around you, you know, you're, you're creating a sensation within you that you can handle whatever comes. And so yeah. uh, I imagine that's part of the preparation process is helping people tap into that mm -hmm. sort of inner strength that already exists in them before. Yeah. As we just shared, that's why it's so helpful with near event of life anxiety. There's other threshold. We don't know what's going to happen and people get shocked with fear. And, and to share the, this, the gestalt or stigma with psychedelics, as Michael Poland points out in his bestseller, How to Change Your Mind, that really helped kind of like bring a megaphone to the field. He says yeah, during there's the also 60s, a great series on Netflix, I think. Is it Netflix? It's one of the oh, streaming well, Netflix, services. It has like a four part on it. It's really that's... good. Y'all go watch it. But please go yeah. on. No, yeah, really Michael well Poland, How to Change Your Mind. Yeah. He says that what other point in human history did the youth have such a searing ride, a passage that the older generation didn't understand, right? And so as I just mentioned, our response to the unknown tends to be fear. Psychedelics are unlike anything in the planet. And that's not just like my biased approach. We're coming into states of consciousness that are really so profound or ineffable by their nature. It's hard to put words even to them, right? And so our response to things we don't know tends to be 
fear. Like, so like if aliens landed down tomorrow, of course there's a portion of humanity that's excited. Imagine 70% was like, we better bust out the military and eradicate this unknown, right? And so we're, we introduced something into society during the 60s and 70s that was completely unlike anything else. And then it created radical change in, in politics and in arts and in philosophies, in spirituality. A lot of people that had these states went to the East and brought over other religions, right? You had people fighting the Vietnam War. You had the rise of feminism and, and, and racial rights. I mean, there's a lot that happened because of these expanded states. But that rapid rate of change was scary for the older generation because for most of human history, there was barely any change happening. It was very incremental, right? Now you had this huge explosion during the 60s and the response some people like the government to maintain power, but the response in general was like, it's safer to put these away. And you created this image of, I mean, we already had a lot of stigma around substances in, in altered states, right? And now it got placed in the same category legally as as heroin. Right. Right. Can I ask you, why, why did these sort of disappear? Because I feel, I mean, I know they made synthetic, like psilocybin and things like that in the 60s in labs, maybe even in the 50s, but where did it go if we if indigenous peoples were using it and mm. i'm assuming indigenous peoples have continued to use it throughout all this time where it, it disappeared in western culture but where did it go why did it why did yeah. the practice leave us so no good question for a lot of people it continued and so there was still a lot of underground movements there's underground psychotherapy still happening indigenous people continued there's rise of festivals i mean burning man's going like 30 years it's huge like there's all these things but it became scary for people to talk about. And so there weren't many books written. There wasn't on the news. There wasn't studies done in universities. As we were just kind of pointing out, fear is very powerful, right? It came to the point where if you talk about psychedelics, you could lose your career, your status, your job. There's the fear. You know, then you had the just say no kind of drug breakdown during the 80s and the early right. 90s where it was people were so scared of being persecuted. So it became safer not to say anything. So all these dialogues that were possible weren't there. Terence McKenna is a famous philosopher in this area. During the 80s and 90s, he gave hundreds, if not thousands of talks, you know, but it was kind of left to the fringes of society. There's still a lot of scientists and people doing it. And because of the suppression, scientific research couldn't be done. There wouldn't be the survival without the science happening, right? right. Because now we have objective facts using the scientific method that if you follow the, the same kind of clinical method over and over, you get the same results and they're amazing, not unlike anything else. So now we have a backbone in truth. It's not some person being like, oh my God, my life got changed by psychedelics. It's like, no, even though that remains true. Decades. Yeah, yeah, that remains true the entire time. Now we just have rigorous studies and that's made it more acceptable for everybody to talk about and even contemplate the idea instead of shunning it of like, oh, that's just drugs are bad for you. Now we have hardcore evidence, again, from the last two decades, that's pretty ir irrefutable. So sort of like a, the stigma against substance uses, um, the, I would even venture to say, you know, the colonization of the world, looking at people using these substances and saying, oh, that's not a thing that we do, you know, kind of othering people that use those substances really just drove it underground. But it didn't. It, see, I think it disappeared, but it wasn't. It dis It didn't disappear. It was there all along, just yeah. unseen, like so many things. And now it's just due to the work of the, the people that you were talking about, yeah. um, bringing it back. And so it's good. It's good we have, because yeah. I think people do yeah. have a lot of fear and the science will help yeah. alleviate mm -hmm. some of that fear. 
so yeah, no, I'm happy to discuss this. There's a good book called um, Shamans Through Time written by Jeremy Narby, and he got his doctorate in anthropology in, in um, at Stanford and looking at the history of the Western culture's relationship with shamanism. So about 500 years ago, Western culture in um, Europe became aware of shamanic use in indigenous cultures. And their first go-to was to label them as devil worshipers, right? You're coming from a Christian context. These people are doing dancing and rituals by fire, taking psychedelics. You know, not so different than Burning Man now, but like they're kind of in this kind of spiritual kind of trance states. And they're like, they must be talking to the devil. So you had persecution of them. And so even when the Europeans came to the Americas, North, Central, South America, high level psychedelic use across the Aztecs, the Mayans, the Toltecs, all over up and down North, Central, South America. And they were eradicated to the church largely to kill them. It was the largest ethnocide in human history. About 60 million people died. Nine out of 10 Americans, Native Americans, were killed partly through diseases. The, the language gone, the temples broken, all, all gone. As the centuries kept moving forward, they got moved from the part of devil worshippers to charlatans. Oh, these guys are tricksters. They're trying to come over and take power and take your money and whatever. So that was the next, but it's it's better than um, devil worshippers because devil worshippers, they could kill you, you know. Now charlatans all can distrust them. But in the early 1900s, it got seen as a proto-psychologist because now we develop psychology in the Western world. And now like, we oh. have a framework to understand it. There you get I'm like, oh, they're healing the mental health of their society through a type of psychology. Then shamans got replaced as, as kind of psychologists. Then you have during the 60s and 70s, anthropologists and other people going and taking medicines with the tribes. And they're like, oh my God, these are just like spiritual wisdom holders. They hold the cosmology and the, the wholeness of the tribe together. And then you have all these people in Western culture, their lives have been changing the psychedelics. So we had to reframe the entire thing, right? So it's been quite a way of, you know, for so much of Western culture to be dominated, we just assume we're superior. So there's no reason to learn from other people. You know, we have the truth, whether it's Christianity, whatever it is, the truth, these people's practices are bad. And that had been the context of we're good, other people are evil for so long. And it took us so long to really elevate and respect other cultures, to see them as equal and that they have other ways of knowing. And this thing, way to even entertain their techniques of how they do spirituality, which again, this is, we're talking about deepening a relationship with nature. Right. You know, which itself is what created us and we're connected to. So I, it's, it's such an easy portal to great, create that deeper connection with nature, which I think at some level we're all suffering because we're not having. I think that's probably true. Um, so when I talk to various uh, spiritual leaders or, you know, read books or whatnot, they talk about meditation and certain yogic practices as having some of the same effects as psilocybin and other psychedelic drugs i know that's your your specialty why why plant medicine instead of meditation or do we do both is there how to tell me more yeah they're i mean they're very synergistic you know and deep journeys i think to times a year it does a lot for you i mean i do more but it's up to you they're like deep dives but as far as daily practice meditation is amazing i've had since 19 years old so many journeys it was like go keep your meditation practice that would be part of the, the message and there's a period you know it was eight years ago got deep into meditation where i was doing one hour then two hours and three hours a day and after over 100 days having that same kind of breakthrough i'm gonna die then you kind of die they kind of infuse with like vibrating with like i'm eternal connected with god the whole like and the first thought that arose was, I've experienced this on psilocybin. This took me hundreds of hours 
and I'd say to have this kind of state of connection. So I think they, they, they can lead to similar spaces because end of the day, we're dealing with the same structure of consciousness in the same universe, right? So there's going to be a lot of similarities. That being said, what if I'm looking at it from a more non-dual approach that there's some correlation between our brain chemistry and these other states, when we introduce new compounds, and there's many, there's you know psilocybin, there's LSDs, there's ketamines, um, there's DMT, 5-MeO-DMT, there's MDMA, so many. When you give that kind of compound in your brain, you're going to have a different flavor of consciousness that isn't possible otherwise, right? And so it's we're going to hit my my deep understanding after looking at this for a while. You're going to hit the same spiritual truths, whether it's meditation, whether it's singing, chanting, vision quests, medicine, same truths. We're all one. Love's really important. Be a good person. All, all kind of really important foundational things across all the religions. This just gives different flavors and kind of gets to those altered states faster, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. And then so many people that get into psychedelics then pick up a meditation practice. And that's what we saw in the 60s. Right. You know, people brought yoga, they brought tantra, they brought all these different ways of being, and they were open-minded enough to even see things. The, the correlation between openness is, is the biggest personality trait that clinical psychologists have found in change. When people take psychedelics, they become more open to other ideas. So then you have a tremendous growth there. So, so it's definitely not one or the other, you know, I think we can grow a lot through that synergy. So they, they can support one another. And I also think just from a personal meditation practice and the many, many people I've talked to with meditation practices, meditation can be deeply uncomfortable in much the same way we were just talking about the psilocybin bringing things up. Meditation can bring things up. Um, but most people don't have a meditation guide and you might do a guided meditation, but there's not somebody sitting there with you as a general rule to help you integrate everything that has come up. So maybe that is um, another, another difference as well. I'm just interested because I've heard people say, and I don't, I personally don't think this is true, but I have heard people say, um, Oh, taking psychedelics is cheating. You should have to meditate for many, many hours, which I think is interesting because like, but you would say, oh, my ancestors, the, since the dawn of humanity, people have been cheating to get to their spiritual truths. And I'm like, that doesn't make any sense because mm. in my worldview, the plants wouldn't exist if they weren't useful somehow to the environment, to us, and we weren't useful to them in some way that, again, like you're saying that synergistic effect. So mm -hmm. I do, I just wanted to address the in your mind, it's not meditation versus it's meditation and a hundred percent, you know, and to really address what you just shared, because that's come up a lot in the years where people might think it's a sh cheating or a shortcut. And, right. and, and I mean this in a very friendly way, but it's, it's, um, I mean, the very place that's coming from is a, is a very egoic place. So if I have to achieve something and do something by myself and not that the ego is bad, Right. Like, why is one better than the other or more? If you're hitting love and goodness, why? Right. So even the idea of I'm achieving there by myself is like, oh my God, finally, I'm good. I did it. I did, I did it. it. I did the thing. I'm so good. Look at me. I meditated for 500 hours. Oh yeah. No, I see I did that, it the that, hard that. way. Right. So again, ego is not bad. That's not how I hold that framework, but just to bring awareness to that. But because it's coming from that framework, the part of the reason an ego can even exist, again, not bad, is it feels separate from everything else. That's the nature of the ego is I have an individual self, not bad. The universe births them, right? But so this idea that I have to pull myself up on my bootstraps and do everything alone and be over self-reliant autonomous is a very egoic kind of pull. And it comes from this groundedness that doesn't see our interconnection. 
Mm. Right. Oh, I have to get there by myself. And the truth is you can't break away from the interconnection of everything, whether the oxygen, the suns, the plants, you're always within this large interdependent system. And so what you're doing is deepening those relationships with nature that have always been there. I don't think as a culture, we can get there alone. We never could or else we would have. Right? We, right. People have been meditating for a long time. We have all these religions. We can't as a whole function as a society without coming back into these natural processes of evolution. You know, so again, this the egoic part of uh, we're isolated and have to do everything ourselves is, I think, another barrier that we have to humble ourselves enough to be like, you know what? We do need nature. We always have needed nature. We will not not need nature in the yeah. future. What do you see as the future of psychedelic research, of psychedelic use in the United States and in other countries where uh, it's currently illegal? Do you see it coming to full legalization? Do you come see it coming as a controlled substance? Yeah, it's going to be many ways it's going to keep unfolding and it's going to be fairly unfathomable in the ways that it can. Um, So projected legalization right now, both for psilocybin and MDMA is 2024 in the United States. Right. So it's around the corner. I know. Right. It really but, is. That's just. Yeah. Right yeah, now. Yeah. Almost. Yeah. 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 So. I mean, so if we're looking at MDMA, it was a 30 year struggle starting with Max and Rip Doblin to get there so that there's their third stage FDA trials because they really created the legal framework of moving it forward. Psilocybin was able to move a lot faster and came in with a lot of funding. So it was able to cut right through and it did it like in five or six years, which took 30 years for MDMA. It looks like they're going to be both legal in the, in the same year. I mean. You have clinics already been made. You know, That's the legal right. groundwork's already been done. It's around the corner. Um, and so it's going to be unlike anything else entering into society. Looking at the science and how effective it is, there will probably be a psychedelic clinic in every city and town that has any kind of clinic. And so therapists are run- – the biggest bottleneck is getting people trained. The medicines are easy to produce. The legal work done. There's a lot of money coming in, right? So it's getting – it takes a while to train good people to do this work so that's but people are it's i, I hear of a new training every week right it's, it's really it's really huge right and people are and this is a lot of the funding is by private donors people who have experienced a journey who see how incredibly valuable it is um people very wealthy whose names you would recognize are donating money to research for this mm-hmm. uh purpose so this isn't just like as you were saying there's a lot of money coming in there's this isn't just some fringe study this is very very mainstream in academia which most of us are not living in and so Mm -hmm. that's why we talk to people like you Mm -hmm. (laughs) because that's where you live Mm -hmm. Uh, i do want to talk briefly about uh, contraindications are there people who we know already won't benefit from this or for whom it is a truly a dangerous substance yeah you know so was it a few months ago? I talked to a psychopharmacologist at UCSF whose entire job is to find contraindications for psilocybin. When it comes to medicines, there are none. Right. So it, theoretically, you need a thousand doses of psilocybin to die. Like it's it's a really safe compound. That doesn't mean it's emotionally safe or psychologically safe to take really high doses. Biologically, on that level, you're fine. Um, you may find one, you know, it's so mimics serotonin so easily, so well works within our brain. I can probably because we evolved with it mm-hmm, then mm-hmm. your body, your body's okay with, with psilocybin. There are to, to then get to the more nuances. It is somewhat of a stimulant, right? So studies, I was just talking with somebody else. I was looking at the research yesterday where it does increase blood pressure a little bit for most of us. It's fine. Caffeine does, you know, it stimulates more. But if you have a very sensitive heart or you're in your 80s, you know, and hitting older, 
your heart can't handle a lot of arousal, right? So if, imagine you have a big traumatic experience come up. That could kill somebody in their 85 or 90s. It's not that it's bad. It's just too much emotion and energy running through their system, right? So mm -hmm. maybe smaller amounts. It doesn't mean that they should not be able to have this experience while they're alive. It just needs to be done a lot more carefully, maybe a lot more gently. So, so heart conditions are one. And then age plays a role of how much to take. My honest response is, I think you can heal most psychological conditions. I, I can't think of any that it probably can't. That doesn't mean that we're in a state right now where we're qualified to hold all those things. And so some big ones that come to my mind where you scan out for is schizophrenia and borderline. And it doesn't mean that they don't deserve healing. If this premise is true, that psychedelics create a state of wholeness. It helped anybody integrate these fractured parts and these deep traumas. And so I think it could be useful for even them, but they would need a team of people for one person. And they would need a facility that they could probably be in for a week or two long-term to guide them, right? So for other more well-adjusted individuals, they can go home to a resort or clinic, have this experience, stay overnight, go back home, have follow-ups and integration. It's fine. There's other people, including sometimes bipolar, that can hit manic states where that could set them off for two weeks. Not necessarily bad, but they need more support and so i think as we move towards legalization and then more people come in that are specialty in certain niches borderline schizophrenia they could come and work with this and bring the right kind of environment that's possible too so the short answer is with time i think everybody um but we're not there right now as a society to be able to hold this for everybody right we want to just be sure that we're doing it carefully and safely and effectively and we don't want to do harm when the idea is to do good. Yeah. Interesting. So I know that you do lead uh, journeys. You lead uh, experiences for people. Um, can you share a little bit about that? How does that work? Mm -hmm. um, who is that for? Yeah. You know, people definitely can look at the websites it's psychedelicevolution.org for more information on that specific part but when we go out to jamaica you know we we were the second as far as we know like psychedelic psilocybin kind of retreat center and jamaica was the only place where it was 100 legal out of every country you know we were the second ones out there because we wanted at least to create a pathway for people to have access legally a lot of people maybe half the population will do something if it's illegal right it's a safety concern from them so they're willing to fly somewhere else sure that's totally reasonable yeah, and because we were, you know, taking such a risk to do something new, we were trying to find people that were still somewhat healthy and stable. So we weren't dealing with high in PTSD and trauma. Of course, a lot of people actually came that had that, um, but we were trying our best to scan things out. So 80, 90% of the people come because of depression and mm -hmm. or anxiety. Mm -hmm. So by far, most people that come in the space, it's a depression and then anxiety is kind of tied to it. If you don't feel like you're good enough, you don't feel capable of dealing with the world or tomorrow, you also have anxiety. Right. So they, they kind of can go together at times. Then you have a lot of people dealing with grief, you know, sure. their child had died or they have cancer. So you have a lot of range of people, maybe about 10 percent of people came in that felt, oh, I'm on top of everything and I'm really healthy and I'm just here to have spiritual experiences, creativity and expand and just growth. And that's a good reason to come. But most people come because they're in pain. Right. You know, but we couldn't deal with somebody that's in the middle of their heroin addiction. But people have come that were on methadone and, and to also to work through stuff. So they had to be somewhat stable and we had to scan that out for the people over there. Yeah. Sure. 
Okay, that's very interesting. And it is a process, right? This isn't you just show up and you you take some psilocybin and you call it a day and you go to the beach, right? There is a process. This is, um, it is standardized. Is that the right word? There's a... We have a a pretty systemic deep protocol. Um, Aside from looking at application and then scanning people through from that way, we have um, preparation calls before they even show up to Jamaica, you know, an hour with each person, going through their psychological history, their intentions, what they're wanting when they get there. And then they land and we do rent out the private resort on the beach to do this work. And then the first day is again, more prep. Um, so much of our sense of safety comes from the group. So we do a lot of group exercises, psychological exercises. They get to meet, it's 12 other participants and get to know them very well. So they can finally relax. And as we mentioned, so much of the healing actually comes from connection. So of course, people came for the psilocybin and that was the number one thing. But most people didn't realize that bonding this deeply with a group healed them also tremendously. And a lot of them have been friends for many, many years. So we do all this prep work and then we check in with one of them, each and one individually and in small groups. So there's a lot leading up to it. We have this larger ceremony, last six to eight hours the next day. Um, We do some integration that evening, but people are generally really exhausted. And then we have an entire day of integration the next day, checking individually, then in a large group integration circles for a couple hours, um, art exercises, and then journaling to help them integrate some more, um, a little social time to connect in that evening. Then they'll wake up the next day in a large group integration process again. And then they come back home and then we have an integration call about a week later. So there's a lot of safety stuff in and out. So our point and hope isn't for people to have a cool experience. Like we're here to create deep transformation as effectively as we possible in this a lot of time, you know? Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of before and after a lot of handholding, a lot of caring, creating deep senses of safety and helping them work with their, the nuances of what they're trying to get out of this experience. I think that's fascinating. I also think that's fairly common with people who are doing what you do, who really take very seriously the work of psychedelics, right? It's important to so many people to introduce this into the population in a safe, effective way and to remove some of the stigma around um, these substances as much as we have. I mean, there's stigma around so many medicines for so many different kinds of things. So I don't know why this would be different, but I do feel like it is different in some ways because of the illegality factor, right? And again, these are legal ceremonies that you're performing, and I want to be really clear that that's what's happening here. Mm -hmm. If people want to know more about you, your work, your research, anything that you do, you you mentioned your website earlier. Will you mention it again? Yeah, it's www.psychedelicevolution.com dot org and that's also, the name of your book as well yes psychedelic evolution strangely it was that my dissertation was but it, it, we changed it to um the psilocybin connection oh okay um, psych- psychedelics the transformation of consciousness and evolution on the planet an integral approach okay and it's found so. on all the platforms and it's also in the digital format and it's on audible that there's an audiobook on it also oh neat um i'll put links to that in the show notes to the website but also to the book um, John, thank you so much for your time. Is there anything else that we didn't discuss that you feel like people should really know about this or just kind of spend mm. some time listening, processing, and open your mind to the possibilities of new things coming into our consciousness? Yeah, it's it's exciting. The change in this has happened 
far more faster than any of us was anticipating that's been in this field for a bit, you know, and, and talking about all the ways this has come into culture. A few years ago, some friends here got together and were like, we're going to work to decriminalize it. And within months, they did. I testified in court in Oakland. We've decriminalized it here. I think there's seven or eight different cities around the U.S. that have decriminalized it. There are, now yeah. We, we, yeah, now we're, we have Denver and the entire state of Oregon that have legalized it. I mean, all, we thought this was so far away. So we've been working so hard to try to get things on a federal level, but it's been happening on a local level really fast. And it seems to be accelerating. And so many people are getting educated on it and there's people, really well-trained people coming in. So, you know, before there was fear, but actually everybody's, as Michael Pollan noted after writing his book, he thought he'd going to meet all this um, repercussions or kind of antagonism from psychiatrists, lawmakers and, and everything writing his book. And he found, he's like, I didn't find a single one. Everybody's actually like this and on board. Even in, in um, Texas, there's a state, first state to start um, doing state funding towards psilocybin research for vets. So really? Texas? I know, right? So Good for across, them. The, across the political spectrum, um, Australia just last month jumped to the front of the line and starting July 1st are legalizing medically psilocybin and MDMA. We've been doing decades of work to move towards this well they could see all the research of what's happening around the world they're like this can help people now they're going to be the first country well i think you that's know, what's happening right people are seeing that this is a hurting world that we need healing that what we're doing isn't working it's time to you know consider other options and y'all have been working so hard on the research that you know it, i think it's i think it's really interesting and really important i myself have been fascinated for a while um and learning more about it has really sort of reduced my anxiety that I feel like has been put on me um, just from the culture and from media and maybe those scare films from the 60s and 70s. Totally. But um, yeah, so I, I just appreciate the work you do and uh, that you're sharing this with people and your, your time and your expertise. So thank you so much. Thank you. And I really loved your questions, you know, in the direction, the unfolding of this conversation. Me too. All right. Well, you have a wonderful day and I will talk to you again soon. Thank you. You Bye. as well.